0: Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host and I am joined again by my two favorite people to talk politics with. On this week are Megan Payne. Hello, Megan.
1: Oh, we're your favorite. Hi, Kyle.
0: And Luke Boggs, my other favorite. Hello, Kyle. I've always known I'm your favorite. (laughs) So on this week's show, we are going to talk to Charlie Bailey. He is the Democratic candidate running for Attorney General. I talked to Charlie earlier this week about his views on healthcare, on partisan gerrymandering and on his plan to combat organized crime. So we'll share that interview with you. Um also on today's show, it's healthcare week. This is my favorite week of the year. Stacey Abrams has released her plan for expanding Medicaid and lowering costs in private insurance markets, while Brian Kemp has shifted ever so slightly in his opposition to Medicaid expansion from where he stood in the primary. So we're going to break down those healthcare plans from both of those candidates. And then finally this week we'll share an interview that Megan did with Jeff Graham, the executive director of Georgia Equality. Uh, Graham joined the show to discuss the impact of religious freedom legislation and LGBT representation under the Gold Dome. Um, So we will share that interview with you today. But first, we're going to introduce a new segment at the top of the show where we react to some of the latest stories in the news. It is always the hardest thing that I do every week to try to narrow down the three topics for us to talk about. And there's a lot of stuff that we end up skipping over So we're going to start all of our shows from now on just catching you up on some of the latest things, things that you may have heard about, things that you maybe haven't heard about, uh, but that is where we will start. Um, So some of the news from the last week or so, um, the first thing that we wanted to note was the debate schedule for Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams has been released. The Atlanta Press Club debate is going to be on October 23rd, and the WSBT WSB TV debate is going to be on November 4th. That is just a couple of days before Election Day on November 6th. And since you probably got your calendar handy at this point, this is also a good time to remind you that the voter registration deadline is going to be on October 9th. Another another piece of news for this week. So late on Monday, Judge Amy Totenberg ruled that the state would not be forced into using paper ballots this fall. This comes despite her opinion in the argument that she wrote, showing significant concerns about Georgia's, the security of Georgia's election system. And she really admonished the state officials who focus on election security in the state in her opinion. She said, the state's posture in this litigation, and some of the testimony and evidence presented, indicated that the defendants and state election officials had buried their heads in the sand. This is particularly so in dealing with ramifications from a major data breach at the Center for Election Services at Kennesaw State University and the erasure of the center's server database and a host of serious security vulnerabilities. Guys, what did you think of Totenberg's ruling And the outcome that the state is not going to be suddenly forced to use paper ballots in November.
1: I have pretty mixed feelings on it. So as you guys may remember from past podcasts, I really do believe that technology helps us with voting and that paper only ballots are not a good option. Um, And while I believe most of our uh, legislators are promoting kind of a hybrid system of like a digital front end with a paper back end. I was a little bit worried as we came into this because a lot of what I've been seeing is vote absentee, paper only, paper is good. Um, And there are actually a lot of problems with paper only systems, hanging chads. um, Anyone remember that from the George W. Bush election? There's also been some studies about how people filling out uh, the paper ballots, especially those that are that belong to minority groups and such um, will not necessarily follow the instructions, which I found to be disturbing. And I don't know. I just I had some mixed feelings about it, just in general because of how the test was run and how how the polling occurred. But if that is that in fact true, then that is just another form of voter suppression. So what I was really hoping for was a hybrid system, and I feel like this opinion is just an example of yes heads in the sand we need to do something but i don't know that the state is ready to go digital front end paper back end for whatever reason honestly i think it's it's that kemp's not ready for it because paper a paper trail is fully auditable but there's no reason why we shouldn't have some sort of digital front end with like a paper receipt for example you cast your vote and it prints out a receipt so it's just it's it's kind of interesting that We couldn't make a decision on it as a state. And then obviously there are a lot of details that go into it.
2: So my reaction to this is that uh, you're most people are going to read the headline of this and to and their takeaway is going to be that this is a win for Brian Kemp and the secretary of state's office. Uh, that is not the case whatsoever. Uh, what this is, is a brutal condemnation of how poorly they have handled this situation. Uh, they demonstrated both through in affidavits and an in-courtroom example where uh, one of the technology specialists had voting machines that use the same hardware and software, or very, very, very similar software and hardware, where they were able to take a card that they had uploaded uh, malware on to put it into a machine and literally change the votes of people without it being able to uh, for the system to catch it and audit because how the system works is basically uh, putting it very very simple simply is that the machine the only thing the machine can tell you is how many votes there were so it would probably catch it if you added votes uh, after the fact. That would probably be caught uh, from my reading of this case. But if you went in and changed votes, it would not catch that if you dig it the right way, which they were able to demonstrate, again, in in-courtroom demonstration and through various affidavits. Um, the head in the sand quote is the one that's probably going to like be in the headlines and going to be talked about on the campaign trail and the one that like really seems bad for Brian Kemp. But that actually wasn't the sentence that uh, I had the, the biggest uh, takeaway from And uh, because we need to look at this case in like the right way. What this is is basically the judge uh, did not give them injunctive relief, which was the plaintiffs in the case going against Brian Kemp and the secretary of state were asking that the judge force uh, Georgia to use paper ballots for this election in 2018 because of how insanely vulnerable the current system is. Uh, and the judge basically said that it would be in pretty much very impractical for Georgia to actually do that, since uh, we are less than a month away from early vote starting, that it, it just seemed beyond the ability of this state to get that job done in less than a month so that people could actually vote on the schedule maintained. But this is the sense for me that really like takes where this is for uh, the Georgia government. Uh, And now I'm quoting from the opinion for upcoming elections after November 2018, defendants are forewarned that these same arguments would hold much less sway in, fu- in the future, as any timing issues would then appear. Sorry, any timing issues then would appear to be exclusively of the defendant's own making at that point. This judge is saying if this case uh, came to me on January, 9, you know, January 1st of 2019, uh, I would be writing a very different opinion, and the state would have to do something about this. Uh, So I I think this is not going away. And we're going to have to come up with a solution pretty quick after this election, or the state's going to have a lot of liability.
0: And then one more piece of news before we dive into our big topics this week. Uh, We talked last week about Brett Kavanaugh, the Republicans nominee for the Supreme Court. Over the weekend, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford told the Washington Post that Brett Kavanaugh sexually assaulted her and attempted to rape her at a house party when they were both teenagers. Um, This has obviously uh, put Kavanaugh's confirmation to the court in doubt, and Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee have arranged a hearing for next Monday to allow both uh, Kavanaugh and Dr. Ford to testify to the committee about these allegations. And editor's note, since we recorded, as of Thursday morning, Ford is not accepting this invite to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee. She is saying that the FBI should conduct an investigation into the allegations that she is making against Brett Kavanaugh. And Senate Republicans on the Judiciary Committee have given her a deadline of Friday to accept that invite or otherwise it looks like they want to move on with this confirmation. Um, so this is a situation that's up in the air, but it is not a situation where the Trump administration is backing down from their nominee. Um, some of the quotes on background in the press have have signaled that the Trump administration feels that these accusations are just going to make them push Kavanaugh harder. Um, this obviously brings back some echoes of Anita Hill and her... In her accusations that she leveled at Clarence Thomas during his confirmation in the early 1990s. Um, But it'll be interesting to see if this plays out differently in a different era.
1: I found it really interesting that our Georgia senators are kind of not not waffling on their decision necessarily but they're just avoiding the press altogether i was reading an article that the ajc published and it says georgia u.s senators johnny isaacson and david purdue sought to dodge the spotlight on monday and tuesday as reporters swarmed lawmakers looking for comment both indicated they were willing to take the new information about kavanaugh into account even as purdue hinted that he was still supportive of trump's second supreme court pick uh, but what's even more interested is that neither Isaacson nor Purdue are members of the Judiciary Committee, so they're not really going to play a, a prominent role. I just – I have a really hard time with the politics around this. Not necessarily the politics, but just the social aspects of it. I'm a firm believer in hashtag believe women. There is not a good reason for a woman to – especially in this circumstance to come out against um, someone who has assaulted her, it is running her life through the mud. She's having to deal with all kinds of personal issues now for very little, possibly no gain, except for the fact that she just felt like someone had to know. And so all everyone's trying to discredit her by saying that this is part of like a strong arm by the Democrats. It just really, really bothers me. And it bothers me that our two senators from Georgia won't take a step back and listen to his con- listen to their constituents when we're sitting there saying hey this isn't okay it's not okay to have someone who has assaulted women on our highest court in the nation
2: yeah i don't have much to add i think i think uh, both of you covered it uh, pretty well um from what it sounds like though i'm happy to hear that uh the senate is going to Uh, provide her an opportunity to come before them and have Kavanaugh respond. And I think think in this situation, until we know more, that's the the best thing that we can do. And hopefully the truth will come out and a proper response will be uh, given to it.
0: All right. Well, with that, let's dive into our big topics this week. Uh, First, we're going to share with you an interview that I did with Charlie Bailey. He is the Democratic candidate for attorney general. Here is that interview with Charlie. All right. So now joining us is Charlie Bailey, the Democratic candidate for Attorney General. Uh, Charlie, thank you for joining the show.
3: Oh, well, thank you, uh, Kyle, for having having me on.
0: Um, So let's start with uh, just the most important question. Why do you want to be Georgia's next Attorney General?
3: You know, more than any other office, more than any other entity, the Attorney General um, is the person that's supposed to be protecting the people of Georgia, and then if they are harmed, whether that is by an organized crime syndicate, um, you know, a corrupt insurance company or or special interests or, you know, political insiders engaged in corruption, whether they're harmed by any of those entities, the attorney general is supposed to be the one standing in between, you know, the hardworking Georgians that are just trying to make sure their kids have a little bit better life than they did and those forces you know, that are that are arrayed against them. And so I feel that there are a number of areas in which we are not sufficiently protecting the people of Georgia. You know, just a couple in short, you know, right now, as we sit here, there's not, uh, there's no assistant attorney generals working on organized crime and gangs. There's no assistant attorney generals working on human trafficking. I'm going to build not only Um, An organized crime and gang division within the attorney general's office uh, to go after these entities at the top of their leadership, but also build a civil rights division for the first time in the state of Georgia. It's 2018. We don't have a civil rights division. Um, In conjunction with that, I will be pushing for a state civil rights bill that protects Georgians um, from discrimination on the basis of race, ethnicity, ethnicity, religion. Uh, Gender and sex and sexual orientation. Uh, Those are just a couple of things. But, uh, you know, as the chief law enforcement official for the state, as the chief lawyer for the people of Georgia, you are tasked with using that great responsibility, I believe, to protect the people and get justice for them, not to protect special uh, interests and insiders.
0: Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to jump into this race?
3: Right. Well, um, I'm from Harris County, Georgia, uh, which is on the western border of the state. It's uh, right above Columbus, right below LaGrange. Um, I'm an eighth generation Georgian, a seventh generation Harris County and went to the University of Georgia, major in religion and political science, went to Georgia, University of Georgia for law school. Governor Barnes hired me out of law school into his firm, and I spent four years being a trial lawyer, civil litigator under Governor Barnes at the Barnes Law Group uh, before I went into prosecution, and I became a senior assistant district attorney at the Fulton County District Attorney's Office, uh, which is the largest and busiest DA's office in the uh, in the state, excuse me, in the southeast, and so that's where I'm from, and that's where I've done professionally. And was a prosecutor for about four years prior to getting into this race in February. Um, and as far as, you know, what, what led me to get in, it was the realization that a lot of the things I've been complaining about, whether it was um, a lack of any kind of leadership or coordination on organized crime, whether it was a lack of any kind of uh, leadership on uh, uh, civil rights from the attorney general's office, whether it was a lack of, any um, uh, litigation on behalf of the people of Georgia against special interests like pharmaceutical companies engaged in price fixing, or whether it was uh, being on the wrong side of the national every national debate going on, for instance, the Affordable Care Act. Right now, my opponent, who was appointed attorney general two years ago, has got us involved. Uh, you and me, and you know every, every person in Georgia in litigation. To have Obamacare declared unconstitutional, which would not only knock 400,000 Georgians off the exchange and take away their health care overnight, but would also put at risk the 4 million, over 4 million Georgians that have a pre-existing condition. So what I realized was all these issues I'd been complaining about, this was the office from which I could have the greatest impact. On those issues. And so uh, I decided I probably needed to put my money where my mouth was. So I resigned my position at the DA's office and I got into the race in mid-February.
0: Let's dive into some of those issues a little bit. On healthcare, you said um, that you would join other states' attorneys general in suing pharmaceutical companies that deceptively marketed opioids. Um, I know a lot of this conversation in the policy world around the opioid epidemic has been focused on increasing access to treatment for people. So why is um, suing pharmaceutical companies important in your view?
3: Well, two reasons. One, um, you have to. The only way you change conduct or thwart future conduct is uh, for you know for big companies making lots of money is you make them feel it in their pocketbook um, because if they can it, if it can just be the cost of doing business, unfortunately, um, the right and the wrong won't always steer their actions. So you have to put down a marker that this is not going to be uh, tolerated in the state of Georgia. If you come in and do this kind of thing, you're going to pay for it uh, monetarily. The only person that can do that is the attorney general. But here's the second thing. When we recover through these suits, because I'm not just talking about one lawsuit, there are multiple manufacturers and distributors that engage in these prices and in the deceptive marketing of these opioids. When we recover the hundreds of millions of dollars that are owed back to the people of Georgia that are paying for this public health epidemic and, uh, and police and in health care and uh, social workers, when we get that money back, because I'm the chief lawyer for the people, I write the settlement agreement, and I determine – and therefore I can determine how that money is spent. That money will be spent to build treatment facilities around this state because, God forbid, you suffer from addiction – Lord God forbid you suffer from addiction and you do not have means. And so the very real result of the success of the litigation, uh, the multiple lawsuits that I will enter us into, will be we will have funds to build these treatment facilities around the state so that no matter if you're in town in Atlanta, or you're out in Lawrenceville, or you're in Valdosta or Savannah, or out in you know a rural part of the mountains, there will be a treatment facility very close by that you can walk in and you don't have to have a, an insurance card you don't even have to have an ID. You can get free treatment. That's the very real hard result because you probably know this is you, if you talk to public health professionals, everybody says the same thing. They need more funding for treatment. Uh, it, it, it's just there's no two ways about it. Well, this is a major, major Funding source and the most appropriate folks to pay for these treatment facilities are the folks that caused the crisis in the first place.
0: Um, so, to stick with health care, you mentioned the lawsuit that Republican attorneys, uh, that over a dozen Republican attorneys general have joined that would, that seeks to overturn pre existing condition requirements in the Affordable Care Act. If you become the state's next attorney general, would you remove Georgia from? Opposing those uh, requirements under the Affordable Care Act. And there are Democratic attorneys general that are now defending the law in court. Would you move Georgia to the other side to defend that law?
3: On my very first day in office, I will do both those things. I will pull us out of the litigation and I will um, enter us in. Um, with the other Democratic attorney generals that are the only ones, by the way, as I'm sure you know, that are standing there in the breach because the federal government has withdrawn its legal support for the position, which means if not for Democratic attorney generals, there would be no legal defense for all those, you know, millions and millions of Americans and over four million Georgians that have pre-existing conditions. So. Yes to both. Yes, I will pull us out on the very first day. Yes, I will put us on the right side of that litigation, defending the rights and the health care of the people of Georgia and not the corrupt insurance companies.
0: So you've hit your opponent for not being proactive enough about gangs in the state of Georgia. Can you describe the extent of the gang problem and and tell us a little bit more about your proposals to deal with that issue?
3: Right. So what what I think folks may or may not understand is What gangs and organized crime is, is people, a group of people organizing and working together to make money off illicit activity. That's all it is. So whether you're talking about drug trafficking, whether you're talking about carjacking rings, whether you're talking about burglary rings, whether you're talking about human trafficking, this is all illicit activity that makes money for someone. And not making money for us, it's making money for the leaders of those organized crime syndicates. So the percentage of crime that is organized crime um, is extremely high and it's under and it's underreported. I know that because I have I mean I was a senior assistant district attorney in the gang unit in Fulton County. Like I said, the largest and busiest DA's office in the Southeast. And all these things are connected. We just talked about the opioid crisis. Well, it doesn't take long for someone to be uh, hooked on opioids before they figure out that heroin is a twelfth of the cost. The fentanyl is a fiftieth of the cost. And so then they start getting those drugs. Where are they getting those from? They're getting them from the gangs and organized crime syndicates. Um, And it is not um, relegated to any uh, ethnicity or race or neighborhood or part of the state. I've got sheriffs from across the state that have endorsed me. And in the rural parts of uh, Georgia, when they have a um, drug trafficking ring going on, where they're coming from somewhere, and so they have their links to um, some gang in Savannah or a gang in Augusta or a gang in Atlanta, and all this, all this is connected. Um, you know, I've sat in the living rooms of the families of the victims of gang violence, but I've also sat in the living rooms of the families of the defendants that I'm prosecuting because the victims of this gang violence and organized crime, it's not only the people that suffer from addiction from the poison they spread in the streets. It's not only the people that are the victims of the carjackings. It's not only the people that are victims of the executions and the violence in our streets. It's the, it's the young people that these organized crime syndicates prey on to pull out of schools and pull out of neighborhoods, pull them into the gangs, and then they get them to do the dirty work. And the only, way, only place that leads... And you talk to any gang detective or, you know, any investigator that's worked on this, any prosecutor. The only place that leads is to prison or the coffin. And so um, what we're going to do is first we're going to do something. You know, like I stated before, there's not one assistant attorney general working on this. I don't know how you can stand before the people of Georgia and say you should hire me as your top prosecutor. And you're nowhere on this issue. So when we form this organized crime and gang division, I'm going to stock it with the best uh, gang detectives and prosecutors in the southeast. And we're going to identify identify the five, 10 most violent gangs, and organized crime syndicates operating in our state. And we're going to systematically break them down. And let me say this is a long answer to your question. Let me say this. I'm not Pollyannish about this. I fully understand. Uh, You're never going to completely eradicate organized crime no more than you're going to eradicate sin. Okay, but that is not an excuse for doing nothing. We have to be working in the right direction and we can save hundreds and thousands of lives by being proactive on this. And by going after and breaking up these organized crime syndicates at the top, because what that's going to do is that's going to frustrate their ability to move their money around. And it's their money that enables them to go into our communities and recruit these young people out that those are the deeds that I believe are required of the attorney general.
0: You have said that you would not defend district maps that are race-based gerrymanders. But recently, the Supreme Court considered partisan gerrymandering. And Georgia officials testified in a separate case that they drew House district maps based on partisan considerations. So what is your view of partisan gerrymandering? And would you defend maps that you view as a partisan gerrymander?
3: I believe partisan gerrymandering is unconstitutional under the Equal Protection Clause. I was disappointed with the Supreme Court's rulings this summer on that. They had an opportunity when the case out of Wisconsin um, to really strike a blow for the people of Georgia and democracy, and they, uh, they averred on that. I believe partisan, uh, same as racial gerrymandering, is unconstitutional, uh, and I believe it's a scourge on society. Uh, I, I think it is the... Um, greatest threat um, and has the greatest debilitating effect on our civic discourse of anything present in American society right now. And so because my my duty and my, my opponent misunderstands what his job is a lot of times, your job is not to defend every boneheaded law or action some state official uh, takes. Your job is to defend the Constitution and the people of Georgia. And because any partisan gerrymander by any party. You know, I mean, I'm well aware that Democrats have engaged in partisan gerrymandering over the years. I'm fully aware of that. So I don't care which party is doing, a Republican or Democrat, if it, if it is a partisan gerrymander and it is challenged in court, then I will refuse to defend it on constitutional grounds. And I will instruct my assistant AGs to file amicus briefs on behalf of the plaintiffs um, stating as such that they're unconstitutional and a scourge in our civic discourse.
0: All righty, Charlie. Well, thank you for joining the show. If people want to learn more about your campaign, how can they do that?
3: They can do that by going to our website, um, which is charlieforgeorgia.com. That's all spelled out, C H A spell my name right c-h-a-r-l-i-e-f-o-r-g-e-o-r-g-i-a Charlie com. there's a lot of information there um and then on facebook as well they can type in charlie bailey attorney general it comes up and there's a lot of videos and and articles and things we share on on there as well and i just ask everybody to lean in on this thing share some information about me, uh, about this campaign, throw a couple of dollars our way so we can communicate this message. And I promise I'll make them proud.
0: All right. Well, Charlie, we appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk with us this morning.
3: Thank you, Kyle. I really appreciate it.
0: All right. Well, thank you to Charlie for joining the show. Let's move on to our second topic this week. Um, So the one of the big topics in the press between the two candidates for governor has been healthcare in the last week or so today on Tuesday, the day that we're recording, Stacey Abrams is campaigning with former President Jimmy Carter down in South Georgia in Plains to tout her rural health care plan. Um, this is in addition to other proposals that she's released on health care, including her consistent support for expanding Medicaid, which is allowable under the Affordable Care Act. Uh, Brian Kemp, on the other hand, has offered much less detail on health care. And this has been a point of attack for the Democratic Democrats against Brian Kemp. They actually have a new ad on this out today, on the day that we're recording. Um, So let's go ahead and play that ad for you.
4: Seven. That's how many words are devoted to healthcare on Brian Kemp's website.
0: The issues page of Kemp's website
4: has seven words about health care without much more detail. Seven words. So what does Brian Kemp's website not say? He opposes expanding Medicaid, and he'd allow insurance companies to deny care for pre-existing conditions. Rural hospitals closing, children uninsured, veterans can't afford medical care, and we get seven words. Good for insurance companies and politicians like Brian Kemp. Bad for Georgia.
1: Kyle, would you mind taking us through Abrams' proposal, just so we were all on the same page with it? Yeah. So
0: um, the the central plank in Abrams' proposal is something that she has talked about relentlessly on the campaign trail, and that is Medicaid expansion. Um, she. Supports medic. She's she's reiterated her support for Medicaid expansion because it would provide health insurance to 473 thousand Georgians. It would help fix our uninsured rate, which is the fifth worst in the nation, um, and it would bring down a lot of federal money because. The Medicaid expansion is primarily financed from federal dollars and not state dollars, and it would infuse a significant amount of money into our healthcare system, into a healthcare system that's seen six rural hospitals close in the last seven or eight years. Um, so that is sort of the big plank of her healthcare plan: is Medicaid expansion. Um, expanding that program that provides health insurance to low-income people. The second biggest plank to that ex- to her proposal, I would say, is uh, what's called a reinsurance waiver. This is really a proposal that is aimed at lowering health care costs for people who buy on the Obamacare exchanges. Um, in short, what this would do is cap the risk that health insurers take on so if you're an individual who goes out onto the exchange and you buy health insurance you if you're a young healthy person you probably generally use a small amount of health care but if you were to say get into a bad skiing accident you might end up in the hospital with like a hundred thousand dollar bill insurance Premiums that everyone pays into every month. Those are designed to help cover the costs of those super high cost patients for something like a catastrophic event. And what this proposal would do is cap that liability for insurers and let the government take on some of that liability for high cost patients. And as a result, insurance companies in the marketplace would lower their premiums for individuals buying plans. Um, so those are the the two biggest planks in the healthcare plan. She also wants to improve the state's maternal and infant mortality rates. We are fairly unique along with um, a, a few other southern non-medicaid expansion states and having high rates of maternal and infant mortality and um, she also talks in her plan about stopping trap laws the the laws that are designed to close abortion clinics um, and preserving women's access to reproductive services as a part of her her broad healthcare agenda. Um, so that's kind of the core of her healthcare plan. Is kind of those three or four points.
1: Gotcha. And then just so we can contrast it properly, can you lay out Kemp's proposals?
0: Yeah. So so Kemp has been a lot dodgier on healthcare. Um, As the Democrats ad notes, he has only seven words about healthcare on his website. And when he has talked about healthcare in the press, he tends to sort of step back and say, well, we're going to adopt a free market Georgia specific solution. Previously, he has said that he opposes Medicaid expansion. But last week, the AJC reported that he may have shifted that position a little bit. He is not opposing the idea of this thing called a Medicaid waiver, which is basically just an agreement between the federal government and the state government to do something uh, unique with your Medicaid program. He He's saying he's not ruling out a waiver, and waivers are the process by which some states have expanded Medicaid, so that was inferred to be that he may have shifted his position on Medicaid expansion, um but but the truth about Brian Kemp is that he thus far has avoided detail on healthcare about as much as he possibly can
1: Gotcha so it kind of sounds like he's like yeah healthcare is cool but I don't want to pay for it Is that about the summary that you're getting
0: Yeah the the biggest hang up for conservatives particularly as it relates to Medicaid expansion and addressing the rural health care crisis in the state has been that they do not want to expend additional state dollars that would be required if you expand Medicaid. Uh, but the interesting thing here is the numbers like just make absolutely no sense to me. So Brian Kemp says that he wants to expand a hospital rural, a rural hospital donation program Uh, up to the amount of $100 million a year. So these are donations that would get tax benefits from the state, and the tax benefits that go out because of these donations would cost the state $100 million a year. Um, Information from the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute shows that once you factor in some of the boosts in tax revenue that come in, By the state expanding Medicaid, the state would have to expend about $136 million a year. So just over what Brian Kemp wants to put into the donation program. And for that $136 million, you would draw down $3 billion in federal spending to support the state's Medicaid program, and most importantly, to give people health coverage. The, the rural hospital tax credit that was created by Jeff Duncan, the lieutenant governor candidate, and which Brian Kemp wants to expand, it crucially does not give anyone health insurance coverage. It helps offset some costs for hospitals. Um, it's aimed at trying to keep them open, but it does not connect any single Georgian to greater access to health care. And so that, I think, when you're comparing the plans between these two candidates – Stacey Abrams is really committed to giving people access to health care. And Brian Kemp uh, was criticized today by former President Carter for his claim that he would bring health, he would bring access to health care to rural Georgia by bringing jobs to rural Georgia, and that completely, A, it completely misunderstands the economic development problems in rural Georgia, and it does not ensure that people of, of, of modest means in the state are going to be able to access health care. To now that we've kind of dispatched with some of the the wonky details, what do you guys think about either of these proposals or or the politics of healthcare? Healthcare is something that Democrats were really afraid to run on after Obamacare, after the Affordable Care Act. They would you know, very quickly pivot in congressional races and state races, they would pivot to anything else so that they did not have to discuss healthcare. And Republicans hammered them away on it for years. And now it seems like the issue has completely flipped, where Republicans do not want to talk about healthcare at all. And Democrats, even as conservative as Joe Manchin, a Senate candidate up in West Virginia, are, um, he's got an ad out where he shoots through the text of a lawsuit, That Republican attorneys general are working on right now that would undermine the Affordable Care Act and and seek to deem the whole law unconstitutional. Um, So, what do you think about where the politics of healthcare have landed? I think
2: Joe Manchin loves to shoot bills. He does. It's it's interesting because you're kind of you're kind of hitting on two completely different things. Because my first reaction to uh, Abrams's proposal is it is fairly practical. Um, and Abrams isn't really going beyond that. Uh, I, I would admit I'm a little bit surprised by that. I would have thought that Abrams might have uh, pushed for something a little bit uh, harder. Um, but I think, as far as being a policy decision, that uh, Republicans wouldn't immediately scream no to if we do have a Democrat. Uh, governor in Georgia uh, come 2019, and we uh, pick up some seats in the State House and State Senate, uh, I think this is a viable plan and definitely a good uh, starting position. So I'm happy to see that. Uh, and then as the you know conv- complete reversal on healthcare politics and who feels confident in campaigning on it, I think that... Really, just like shows a mistake of strategy both by the Democrats and the Republicans, in the sense that Democrats in 2010 and 2014 really felt like they should run away from the issue of health care and that that would somehow protect them by um, hiding in the corner as Republicans made really strong arguments against what they had done. And I also think it reflects a mistake by uh, long term for uh, Republicans, uh, since they did not have a viable alternative that would fix the problems that they complained about. Uh, It put them in a position to fail. And I think since Democrats now have pretty clear evidence that Republicans don't have a counterproposal to offer that is viable uh, as a federal alternative to uh, the Affordable Care Act, I think it's a lot easier for Democrats to defend it and push for its expansion and push for uh, universal health care because... That clearly seems to be the direction that we need to go uh, to handle these issues.
1: The thing that I find really interesting about this is that it's similar to what I've said previously about education. I don't think any of our legislators are sitting there saying, hey, we shouldn't fund health care just because we don't want people to have health care. I think it comes down to finances more than anything else. And then I think based on what I understand, Kemp and Abrams ideas really break over support of the Affordable Care Act. And again, that comes down to largely finances and then who controls what, you know, it's mandated by the federal government. And a lot of states don't want that they don't want the feds meddling in their what they consider state affairs. And so it's just, it's two different approaches. Obviously, I'm of the opinion that I think some things are, you know, things cost money and things are, worth a certain dollar amount and sometimes it's worth paying for those things and so obviously we need to have health care that's fully funded and that's available to everyone and affordable but republicans just see it a little bit differently from a financial perspective and from a you know who's in charge perspective
2: do you suspect if Kemp is elected that we will see some form of medicaid expansion in georgia
0: I do. I think that there is a general consensus among the business community that Medicaid needs to be expanded. Um, Stacey Abrams told the Georgia Chamber of Commerce at their big gathering that she was a proponent of Medicaid expansion, and the room erupted in applause. And the Georgia Chamber is a group that tends to back Republican candidates. But because the lackluster solutions that we've seen from Republicans in recent years, including this rural hospital tax credit, have done absolutely nothing to move the needle to support economic development and healthcare access in rural Georgia. Because that stuff hasn't worked, the chamber, I think, has endorsed a view that Medicaid should be expanded. Now, they're going to pair Medicaid expansion with some what they would call sort of protections on Medicaid expansion, but are really what they are, are barriers to people accessing coverage. This includes things like a work requirement that you've seen in other welfare programs. Um, So I, I do think despite what Kemp said in the primary that he opposed Medicaid expansion, I think he is going to end up in a place where he support some version of it. And they're going to end up trying to argue that no, this is not related to Obamacare. This is a Georgia specific solution. But it's too much money to get left on the table, especially now that ACA repeal has failed. And we'll know next year if Democrats have taken the U.S. House and if ACA repeal is pretty much out the window. And if so, this is leaving money on the table unnecessarily that I think Republicans will finally come to their senses and and expand Medicaid.
1: Kyle, I heard you and Charlie Bailey talk in your interview about the ACA lawsuit that Georgia has entered. Would you mind talking about that a little bit more?
0: Yeah, so this was really interesting, especially to talk to Charlie Bailey about it, because This is a lawsuit brought up by over a dozen Republican attorneys general around the country. um, And they are suing the federal government over the Affordable Care Act. And they're doing it based on what legal scholars consider to be a relatively obscure legal theory that because of a change Republicans in Washington made to the ACA last year, the ACA no longer has a mandate penalty, the requirement that you buy health insurance, which is in the law, there's no longer a financial penalty attached to that because Republicans zeroed it out. And so based on the logic in the Supreme Court that upheld the Affordable Care Act as constitutional in 2012, these Republican attorneys general are arguing that because the law no longer has a tax in it, the rest of the law should be invalidated because The tax argument was the one that John Roberts used to save the Affordable Care Act in his ruling in 2012. Legal scholars have kind of found this to be an absurd legal reasoning as it relates to this. But the real world impact of this would be that the biggest thing that would be lost in the law if you were to undo the law right now are legal requirements that health insurance be offered to anyone, regardless of whether or not they have a pre-existing health condition. And so this means if you are recovering from any significant health condition, if you have heart problems that later manifest themselves into something like a heart attack that insurers can basically put holes in their coverage that allow them to not pay for healthcare services that are the result of a preexisting condition. Um, So these protections are in the law. They were established by the affordable care act and really, put a tighter set of regulations on health insurance markets. And that is what would be lost if this lawsuit was to be successful. And the interesting thing that Charlie said was that Georgia's current Attorney General Chris Carr is a part of that lawsuit challenging the law. And what and attorney General Charlie Bailey would do is he would remove Georgia from opposition in that case and move them to the side of supporting the law, which would put Georgia and a few other states with Democratic attorney generals up against the states with Republican attorney generals and up against the federal government, up against the Trump administration, who's taken the really unusual step of no longer defending a law that is still on the books. Um, So that is something that I think is really substantive and in a really sharp position from him in this race. Um, And it highlights what the state would lose if the Republican attorneys general are successful in nullifying the Affordable Care Act. All right. So we'll we'll wrap that discussion there. Um, I could do this for hours, but I know you all have lives you would like to lead. Um, But let's transition to our final topic. And Megan, our final topic is an interview that you did with Jeff Graham from Georgia Equality. Could you tell us a little bit about this interview, and then we'll get it started?
1: Sure. So Jeff is the executive director of Georgia Equality, which is an organization that works to advance fairness, safety, and opportunity for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender communities throughout Georgia. He's been involved with LGBT politics and issues since, uh, I believe, the 1980s, and he's received a number of awards for his amazing and tireless work. Um, he and Georgia Equality are definitely beacons of hope for the LGBT community, and we're so grateful that we're able to have him on our show. All right. So with that, here are Megan and Jeff. Hey, Jeff. It's so great to have you on. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Megan. It's great to be here. So I am going to just dive right in with some questions. Um, We're so excited to have you on and to really get to dig into some of these Riffra questions. We've been talking about Riffra a lot on our podcast. And um, you recently told Project Q that over the past decade courts have started to interpret the 1993 Religious Freedom Restoration Act in ways that the bill's authors did not intend. Can you give examples of that shift and examples of how the shift impacts LGBT people?
4: Sure, absolutely. So I think, uh, first off, it's, it's, it's important to really remember why RFRA was passed in the first place. So in the, in the late 80s and early 90s, um, as drug screening became more and more uh, standard, that there were actually a group of Native Americans who used peyote during their religious ceremonies, but were failing drug tests uh, to remain as government employees, government contractors, um, and so uh, the the Supreme Court had originally said, you know, that uh, that this was kind of a gray area of the law, and that's why Congress uh, was instructed to step in and uh, set up. Uh, The Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, to ensure that folks uh, primarily with uh, minority religious views at the time were not burdened by government overreach into their religious practices. Um, I, many folks uh, across the aisle, uh, across the political spectrum, worked diligently over several years to draft the Federal RIFRA and have it signed into law uh, by President Clinton in 1993. There's a, a, a bit of a history to, to how that has been used over the, the last few years, but specifically when I say over the last decade, the courts, um, I have begun to interpret this in ways that we did not, that, that, that the framers did not uh, originally intended uh, to, to, to be interpreted. I think that the best example of that is the uh, 2014 U.S. Supreme Court ruling in the Hobby Lobby case. Um, uh, regarding uh, uh, provisions within the Affordable Care Act that would have forced insurers to offer contraception to women. Um, And there were some faith-based employers, uh, very specifically Hobby Lobby uh, as as a company who said that they were a closely held company with very strong corporate values um, and that they did not feel that they should be forced into providing contraception through, uh, through the health insurance plan. Uh, the Supreme Court decided with them in that. And so that's, I think, probably the, the, the most uh, specific example of how uh, the courts have begun to interpret uh, this o- over the years. There, uh, certainly, uh, if you look going back to the George W. Bush administration, uh, that's when the administration itself, began to argue that uh, rifra uh, could be used to justify allowing faith-based employers to take tax dollars, but not adhere to the non-discrimination requirements for dealing with employees that other employers uh, up until that time uh, had, had been dealing with. So I... Uh, uh, those are just two examples of why we feel that uh, because of how RIFRA has been interpreted uh, and how different administrations have begun to, to interpret RIFRA um, over the last decade or so, that uh, it, it is no longer uh, just this kind of benign, feel good piece of legislation that was there to protect uh, religious minorities, but is actually actively being used now to create carve outs against non discrimination policies and laws
1: thank you so you noted in the same interview you know as where this is this legislation is uh, you know primarily to do with religion and so you noted in the project Q interview that a broad divide between religious communities and the LGBT community caused by the debate of RIFRA does not actually exist and as a member of the LGBT community which my our listeners all know um, I definitely agree with that statement Um, And I identify as a Christian. So would you mind speaking a little more to the current situation regarding religious communities, especially Christians and the LGBT community?
4: Yeah, ab- absolutely. So, um, uh, you know, I, I'm uh, glad to hear that you agree with it. Uh, as a Christian, as a member of the LGBT community, we hear from a lot of LGBT folks um, whose faith is very important to them. Uh, in fact, back in, in 2010, uh, we did uh, the first, at that point in time, broad survey of members of the LGBT community, And uh, we interviewed, we had uh, over 2,500 Georgians filled out surveys. uh, And what we found was that uh, roughly half of of the folks uh, that filled out the survey said that um, uh, faith was a very important part of their life um, and that uh, they did identify as a person of faith. Uh, both faith and spirituality helped guide their lives, and for a sizable number of uh, LGBT Georgians, attending weekly services of the, the, the religion of their choice was also very, very important to them. Um, so beyond just myself uh, being someone where, where faith and spirituality is very important to me, who I, so I also believe these things personally, uh, we have some, some data to, to back that up as well. In addition to that, while uh, yes, we have debated RIFRA quite a bit down at the legislature over the last five legislative sessions, um, there's been a lot of talk about the business argument um, and the business environment and why RIFRA is bad for that. But what often gets lost in those arguments is that uh, we have developed a network of over 300 clergy uh, members and faith leaders, primarily from Christian and Jewish faith traditions, who have joined our network to actively speak out against uh, Rifra and the potential harms that it would cause. So, frankly, we have had uh, representatives of uh, all of the uh, major Jewish faith traditions. And within the Christian traditions, we have had members of almost every uh, Protestant faith that's out there. And then I I do think that it should be noted that uh, the Catholic Church uh, so far has remained Neutral uh, in these efforts here in Georgia to pass a RIFRA. And so uh, it has been uh, a debate that has primarily centered around some independent evangelicals and members of the Southern Baptist Convention. And certainly we want to respect all people and their ability to to believe as they want, to worship as they want, uh, to have the faith tradition that is important to them. Uh, we totally agree that that is a, a founding principle of our country, and we want to make sure that that is there. But uh, so often in the media, especially a lot of mainstream media, there's just this broad discussion that makes it appear as though LGBT issues and faith issues are always in opposition. And we know that that is just not the reality for the vast majority of people's lives. Um, We even know that uh, for a lot of folks uh, that that may support RIFRA, even they don't actually want to have harm come uh, to other folks in, in the name of, of religion. And so it it has been part of our very intentional efforts over the last few years to make sure that the voices of people of faith get heard in this debate, as well as the voice of the LGBT community and the business community.
1: Yes, that, that would be amazing. I wish that we could do more to kind of kill this myth that you know, LGBT issues and religious issues are always in opposition, as you said, because that, as you also said, that's just absolutely not the case. And I I wish there were a way to drive that home to the people that need to hear it in better and in more ways. So I'm sure. Well, we're trying. <laughs> right. Well, I, I know you guys are working on it and I wish that there was just like a magic pill that I personally could use to essentially be like, OK, now believe me when I say this to you. But you know that that's just not how that works. So, um, do you think that RIFRA speaks on the question of whether a private business owner would have legal protection to refuse service either to an LGBT person or to refuse service in same-sex weddings? And you know, just to kind of extend that, if a governor Brian Kemp signed a state-level RIFRA, do you think that would protect refusal of service in the state?
4: Um, we, we we do believe that it would, and and the reason why we, we do feel that a RIFRA even if it could be modeled very very closely to the federal RIFRA, one of the unique challenges here in Georgia, um, and a lot of people get surprised when I say this, but I guarantee you, uh, hold me accountable. You can double check me on this one. Um, Georgia is one of just a handful of handful of states that has no broad civil rights law. Period. I'm not talking about protections for the LGBT community. I'm talking about protections for the traditionally protected categories of race, color, national origin, uh, sex, age disability status, veteran status, that are covered under other state-level non-discrimination or civil rights laws. In fact, Georgia, along with Alabama and Mississippi, is one of only three states that has no state employment law whatsoever, and one of only five states that has no public accommodations law Period. And so, in your specific example of a business refusing to provide services to a same sex couple or to a member of the LGBT community, that's what falls under the public accommodations laws. Uh, Title II of the federal 1964 Civil Rights Act. There are provisions, of course, within the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is a a type of federal civil rights act for people with disabilities uh, that talk very heavily about uh, public accommodations. Um Georgia doesn't have that in state law. And so if we were to sign into law a RIFRA, automatically the scales get tipped in favor of the business owner. Because there's nothing there to balance it. That is why, uh, in an effort to find some common ground and compromise, we have said for the last couple of years that we really think this debate should be focused more on how do we pass a comprehensive and inclusive state civil rights law that would include religion as a protected category, but would also include sexual orientation and gender identity as protected categories. That then provides clear guidance to our state courts that if there is a conflict about who is being discriminated and why that discrimination is happening the motivation for it, and how that discrimination is, in, is, in, is impacting someone's lives, the courts could then weigh in on the, the merits of the case. Without that sort of balance, it's automatically going to be tipped in favor of the business owner wanting to withhold services. Then, of course, I think that the, the point around weddings, uh, this is certainly a uh, Uh, As I'm sure uh, many of your listeners can, can appreciate if they've been paying attention to it, the definition of what actually is a wedding service, what exactly is a wedding ceremony, frankly, is in flux right now. Um, I think all of us agree that uh, a religious ceremony where two people are wed is a, a sacred right in, in many faith traditions. And so the First Amendment is, is very clear on that. Existing precedence is very clear. A member of the clergy would never be forced to marry someone that he or she did not want to. Uh, a church, a synagogue, some other holy place – should never be used uh, in a way that that the congregation or the parishioners did not want to see it used. So, so I, I, you know, churches, synagogues. Clergy, they're already protected, and they don't need a RIFRA to do the additional protections there. Uh, then, in addition, under state uh, law here in Georgia, under our state constitution, we have several strong provisions that, again, back up those the federal First Amendment uh, protecting religion and the practice of religion here in Georgia. While the folks that have supported RIFRA have really never said what exactly uh, brought forward an instance where where a person of faith has faced discrimination in Georgia. Uh, Looking online over the last several years, um, we've seen uh, roughly 20 or so cases that have have been uh, alluded to by some of the supporters of of RIFRA, And uh, in just about every single case, the case was either decided using existing state law Uh, in favor of the person of faith, or um, uh, the the courts have allowed an action to go forward, and the case is still working its way through the system. So uh, we don't believe that people of faith who feel that they have been discriminated against uh, actually are lacking legal protections at this point in time, Um, and we do feel that the dangers of RIFRA are such that until such time as we have a civil rights law that protects all people here in Georgia, uh, RIFRA is just something that the LGBT community uh, needs to be very wary of.
1: Gotcha. That makes makes a ton of sense. So what are some of the other stakes for LGBT Georgians in the state races this fall?
4: Well, uh, you know, I I think certainly uh, we've got uh, – The highest number of state legislative seats that are being contested uh, that I can ever remember. And so certainly for LGBT Georgians, um, uh, for those uh, that care about having uh, actual members of the LGBT community down at the state legislature, uh, we have, I believe it's eight candidates that are on the ballot um, in various places around the state. So uh, a few here in the metro Atlanta area, uh, some down uh, in the coastal area, uh, outside of Savannah, outside of Brunswick, um, uh, really great, highly qualified uh, open LGBT candidates. Um, uh, folks like Ben Koo, uh, that's trying to become uh, one of the first Democrats and an openly gay man on the Gwinnett County Commission. Uh, so even local representation, we've got out uh, LGBT folks. But beyond that, uh, we've got uh, a lot of people that are actively talking about LGBT issues. Um, uh, a lot of people who have friends and family members that identify as LGBT um, and want to run on a pro-equality platform. Frankly, we've got you know this this issue around RIFRA that has made it certainly up uh, to as high as, as as the governor's race, but there's a lot of other races in between, um, from uh, the the labor commissioner to uh, the state attorney general to uh, county commission races that are all going to be on the ballot, and um, all of these offices, frankly, have greater control over our day to day equality and the tone and tenor of how the LGBT community is, is treated in public discourse than, uh, than the president or members of Congress. And so I hope that people are really paying attention to these elections, uh, learning where candidates stand on these issues, uh, and we'll keep that in mind when they come out and vote, uh, either early voting in October or uh, the day of voting in November.
1: So we actually talked to Matthew Wilson, a candidate for a State House District um 80, and he talked about his decision to openly run as a gay man and you have endorsed Wilson plus many other candidates and we've also seen an increase in LGBT candidates including Christine Hillquist in Vermont who is the nation's first openly transgender major party candidate for governor. And so like I love to hear you talking about and you know when in this last discussion that we just had about candidates running on LGBT platforms or who are openly LGBT, are these candidates finding success? Um, well, <laughs> a lot of
4: it uh, we'll find out in, in November, but uh, certainly our own recent history in, in Georgia, uh, candidates are finding success. Um, uh, last year, uh, there weren't as many people that, that paid attention to this, but the Doraville City Council elected an openly gay man. Uh, with Joseph Geerman and a transgender woman with Steffi Koontz. So I, I you know, that is happening here in Georgia. Uh, open LGBT candidates are finding success. In, in Councilwoman uh, Koontz's race, uh, in fact, that was decided by six votes. So it also shows, uh, I think, the importance of people coming out and voting, that, that these elections do have consequences The elections really do matter. And I have a feeling uh, if I'm going to make any prediction about this uh, election cycle, the one prediction I'm pretty confident about is that a number of these races will be very, very close. You know, it it may be, you know, a dozen votes that may decide uh, the difference between who wins and who loses in some of these legislative races. Two years ago, we saw a large number of uh, House seats that were decided by uh, 250 votes. Um, uh, That's how Sam Park was elected as the first openly gay man to be elected to the Georgia legislature um, two years ago. He won his race by about 251 votes, I believe is what it was, which is a very narrow margin. Um, So I hope people really uh, will understand that that their vote does matter and representation does matter. And I think we're all seeing that um, uh, elections really do have consequences, sometimes for 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 years to come.
1: So at the end of last month, the city of Atlanta held a briefing where city officials apologized for the city's response to a growing HIV epidemic. The CDC data shows that Atlanta has the fourth highest rate of new HIV infections in the nation – What should voters know about this? And are there things the city of Atlanta or the state government should be doing to address this issue?
4: Yeah, so so I uh, you know certainly uh, it, it was it was great that the city of Atlanta uh, hosted a hearing, uh, and I'm glad to see the city of Atlanta move forward on this. Um, I think that that what most people need to understand the way government duties are split here in Georgia, it's primarily counties that run health departments. Most of the services, both uh, HIV prevention as well as care and treatment issues, are actually handled by and funded by counties. So so that's one of the reasons why City of Atlanta is a little bit slower to the game, but I'm glad to see that that they are paying attention to HIV and AIDS because we need elected officials to recognize that that the crisis is real. Um, And frankly, we have the the tools and technology to dramatically reduce HIV infections and dramatically extend the life of those living with HIV, but it is going to take political will for for this year's elections we're really focused kind of on state issues again. Georgia passed an omnibus bill that defines a lot of the policies around HIV and AIDS in 1987. The what we know about the epidemic and the people living with HIV in 2018 is dramatically different from what it was in 1987. And so we are working with a broad number of stakeholders at this point in time to craft an HIV modernization omnibus bill that would look at everything from uh, HIV criminalization laws, uh, access to medication, Uh, uh, making sure that adolescents can uh, access HIV prevention technology um, and addressing uh, Georgia's extremely high rates of maternal HIV infection. The policies throughout the state of Georgia really need to be looked at, and we are hoping to build support that in 2019 we can pass bipartisan legislation that will modernize all of our policies, um, or at least a large number of, of some of the c- most critical policies. So they're reflective of the epidemic and our ability to fight it in 2018, as opposed to being stuck in 1987.
1: That's great. That would, I, would, I would love to see that happen. Um, so is there anything we haven't addressed that you feel Georgians should know about um, Georgia Equality's current work in the last couple minutes that we have?
4: Well again I you know we we also do a lot of work uh, in HIV and health policy issues Uh, we've got a Transgender Leadership Academy. Um, We work uh, always uh, supporting issues around safe schools, uh, working in coalition uh, with many, many organizations uh, that are working on issues from immigration to focusing on people of color. Um, If people are not familiar with Georgia Equality, I would encourage anyone to just visit our website at georgieequality.org to find out much more about um, the work that we do. Um, This time of year, a lot of people pay attention to our elections. Uh, But that is really only just one piece of the work that we do in an effort to bring fairness, safety, and opportunity to all LGBTQ communities and our allies throughout the state of Georgia.
1: Great. So you mentioned the website. Um, How can we reach you and Georgia Equality to keep up with your work and to also lend a hand?
4: Yeah, actually, um, signing up for our Action Alert Network uh, is what we call it, but uh, that is the best way to find out about what we're doing. We send out a monthly newsletter that talks about upcoming events. Um, uh, and that's also where, in addition to finding out uh, about uh, election issues and legislative issues, uh, especially for folks outside of Metro Atlanta, um, we will often times share information from partner organizations for uh, events. Uh, that are happening in local communities like Augusta or Columbus or Macon or Savannah um, that uh, we feel would be of general interest to the LGBT community. So uh, we've got a, a little over 41,000 people uh, that participate in our uh, email list now. And we would love to to see more folks uh, join us so that they can be more informed about the actions that are taking place around the state.
1: Thank you so much, Jeff, for coming on the show and for all of your hard work. I know that I'm a member of the uh or a recipient of the action list and love hearing about what you guys are up to um thank you so much for coming on
0: thanks megan i definitely appreciate it all right so megan thank you for that for doing that wonderful interview with uh jeff graham
1: thanks for allowing me to do it kyle it was a pleasure
0: and so with that i think we are going to wrap it for the week um so megan thanks again for joining us
1: thanks guys great to talk to you guys as always and luke
0: thanks as always always happy to be here And listeners, if you're still here, we appreciate you hanging with us through a long episode. There was lots to talk about today. We had lots to share with you. Uh, But for that, we are going to leave it there and we will talk to you all next week. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.